If you would turn to the Bible to Job chapter 42. After several, several weeks and months, we're at the end, the very, very end of Job. It's good to see how things end. I hear of people that get upset at a ball game and they turn it off before it actually ends because it's not going well, but I gotta tell y'all, I never do that. I watch till the very end just to even see how it, how it plays out, how bad they lose or what their attitudes are like or what the post-game interview is like. And I hear all the time that people just summarize the book of Job. The book of Job is so uh, familiar, right? We got this guy that is so good and then you have God and Satan in a conversation. So then God recommends Job. Satan destroys Job's life. And at the end, after many, many, many chapters of questioning and discussion and doubt and all of that, God answers back, right? And Job is reminded to keep his faith in God. And so often Job is taught and preached and explained in something similar to that. Well, we have been intentional here to spend as much time as we can on Job. We've spent many, many weeks, and you have heard lots of messages from Job, and it has been quite redundant at times. But nevertheless, God is teaching us from this book, and today we get to the very end. Some verses that in many ways are often not preached, not taught on. We're going to look at the final verses of Job, chapter 42, 7 through 17. In the bulletin, you see that this is rebuke and restoration. Rebuke and restoration. These are two subjects, two categories that must have their place in the life of a believer. Christians must have rebuke and restoration as familiar, knowledgeable categories in their lives. And I think if we're honest, we quite often don't for whatever reason. Maybe you weren't raised that way. You've never been rebuked in your life. You never had a coach call you out. You've never had a boss get on you. And so you're not familiar with rebuke. And then you've never heard preaching on rebuke. And then you've never heard much about restoration because restoration only happens when you've stuck through something long enough for it to need to be restored. That means to take some time. That means you've seen it somewhat good and you've seen it become less, become worse, and then take the time to ride, ride it out long enough to see it restored. Aren't there a lot of things that get restored but the people that should have been there to see the restoration weren't there anymore and they missed it? See, these are good categories. But I'll tell you really what's the problem, I think, with us not having rebuke and restoration in our faith is that to become a believer, you don't need this message. To become a believer. It is true that we can condense the message of salvation to something so short and sweet that people can come to a saving faith just by hearing repent and believe. Yesterday, we were driving down the Outer Loop, and at the corner of Preston and Outer Loop, there were some street preachers there, and I don't think my children have ever seen street preachers before. They had a shirt that said, repent and believe. They had a giant sign that said, repent and believe, and they had a megaphone in which they were screaming out some things. 
My kids ask me, well, you know, what is that? Are they good? Are they bad? Like, what's going on there? And I said, well, street preaching's been really popular before, and there are a lot of ways that it can be really good. I'm not really down on street preaching. And I said, I bet that their message is a good one. Repent and believe is a good message. I know that. Last week, our whole sermon was on repent and believe. I said, it may not be the best way to do it. I'd kind of prefer them to just find one person and they'll take them to the gas station and buy them a drink and tell them through love and service to repent and believe. But to each his own, it may not be bad. Their message is probably good, repent and believe. Now, it's been a long time since I've done some street preaching, just in case y'all were worried. But the message of salvation can be reduced to Jesus died on the cross for your sins. The message of salvation can be condensed to God will forgive you. He loves you. Christ is the answer, right? We can, we can bring the message of salvation in really small to give hope to people, but that is just the gate, the door. That's just the starting point. The message of salvation can be condensed, but the message of discipleship keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The Bible says in the Great Commission, after making believers, after making disciples, after baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It is a lifelong process. It is a class, a school. It is a teaching environment program that you enter into for the rest of your life where you are learning and learning and learning and learning. There are things in your Christian life that you have not been taught on yet that you need to be taught on. This is one of the many reasons why there should be an all-out commitment to you to be in the seat every single Sunday to have the Word of God taught to you. Find you a place and find you a people that with all of their you know, ups and downs and all of their inconsistencies and all the struggles that the local churches present, because we know we have them and we certainly do ourselves, but find you a place and a people that are committed to this and week in and week out, you will hear what the word of God says. And undoubtedly, there will be a place in your life for rebuke and restoration. The message of salvation may be condensed, but the message of discipleship is massive. And we could go through things like, what does the Bible teach on stewardship? What's the Bible teach on what you should do with your money? What's the Bible teach on speech? What's the Bible say about lying and boasting and cursing and bragging? What's the Bible say about all that? What's the Bible say about adultery? What's the Bible say about sexual morality? What's the Bible say about a divorce, right? We could go on and on and on on all of these areas of our life that we should be growing in according to the word of God if we are in the school of discipleship, saying, I have committed myself to Christ. He saved me from my sins, and now I am a follower. And just like in any other program or system you should be in, if you get you a job at Walmart, within five years, you will know the ins and outs of Walmart. You'll know where they keep the keys and you'll know where this stuff is stored and all that, right? Because you've been in the system long enough. In Christianity, the longer that you're in the system, if you will call it a system of following Christ, you should be growing and growing and growing and growing and growing when we are faithfully teaching the Bible. Does the Bible talk about rebuke and restoration? Well, yeah, it does at the very end of Job chapter 42. Now, it does in a lot of other places, but it does at the very end of Job 42. But if all we do is ever skip it, and all we could cover in Job was suffering and sovereignty, which every sermon ever from Job covers suffering and sovereignty, right? But what about rebuke? And what about restoration? So here we are. At the end of Job, with two subjects, rebuke 
and restoration. Read with me, starting in verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. We have two points today, and the first one from these verses is that the Lord rebukes. God is a rebuking God. This is what he does. We are to believe that a rebuke is a good thing. We just heard from Hebrews chapter 12 that God disciplines us for our good. Now, if we follow Hebrews 12, this gets into a parenting conversation, and I want to do everything I can today to not make it about parenting. I want us to see that rebuke is a good thing and that God rebukes. Proverbs 27 verse five says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Proverbs 27 six says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. When somebody is rebuking you, they are being good to you. When somebody is not rebuking you, they are being bad to you. How many times have you ever seen before somebody having learned a hard lesson through discipline and they said something like, my mama raised me better than that or she taught me that. And we understand the importance of rebuke. Proverbs 9 says, do not rebuke a scoffer or he will hate you, but rebuke a wise man and he will love you. In the New Testament, in the book of Titus, you have false teachers. So Paul writes to Titus, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. That the result and the product of a strong rebuke would be soundness, health, would be faith and faithfulness. Here in Job, we see the Lord rebuking. Look what happens. After he said all of that to Job, he now comes back to Job's friends. One would have thought that they were out of the picture at this point. God has just blasted Job with several chapters, putting Job in his place and reminding him of his love and his fatherly care for him. But now God comes back to Eliphaz the Temanite, and he says this to his friends too. In verse seven, it says, my anger burns against you and your two friends. So it's the, it's the three friends that make up so many chapters in the book of Job. But look what we have here. God says he's angry. My anger burns against you and your friends. Is it okay to be angry at times? 
Isn't there such a thing as good anger or righteous anger? Do you have that in your life? Do you know when it's the right time to be angry, things you should be upset about? The other night as we were reading our Bible together as a family, we were just laying there on the floor reading the Bible. We were covering the passage where Jesus cleanses the temple and turns the tables over. And one of my kids said, he was mad and he didn't sin? I said, yeah, there is such a thing as that. It's called a righteous anger. And then one of my kids said, well, what would be an example of that in our lives? I said, well, on Sunday morning, you have to be in the car before nine o'clock because we're gonna be at church by nine o'clock and we live less than a minute away. If you oversleep and you find yourself waking up at 9.15, you ought to be mad at yourself. And that would be a good reason for you to be mad. That's a small example, right? It's not like fierce anger. You better not flip over the table that you're so mad <laughs> at yourself for oversleeping. But that's an example of being angry in the right place, in the right direction. Absolutely, there is a place for people to be angry in the right way. Jesus did it. Here, God says it. God says, my anger burns against you. In the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter four, verse 26, it straight up says to the church, be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. It is from this discontent, a holy discontent, if you will, where rebuke can present itself. It is identifying something in your life or something in somebody else's life, but we must be careful there. It's identifying something that we know is not the way it should be. Something upsetting, something troubling, something angering, something maddening, if you will. And it needs to be addressed. And this is what all those passages in the Proverbs are saying. If we do not address it, then we have a problem. We are not helping. There needs to be a rebuke there. God is doing this. And it's a good thing. He is rebuking them. But I want to show you a really good picture of rebuke, just so you can stick with it. Turn in the New Testament to Matthew 16. This is a very familiar passage but I want you to see it. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, we have the great well-known passage of Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, in verse 18 of Matthew 16, Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Right after that, verse 21, read with me. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. You see that, right? We, we, we preached the Gospels a while back. Jesus is telling them they're going to kill me. They should not have been confused about Christ dying. He said it right there. And on the third day be raised, verse 22. Look at this. And Peter took him aside 
and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from me, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now let's stop there for just a second. This is a bad example of rebuke, right? There is a place in our lives to rebuke other people, but we must be extremely careful on rebuking other people. The Bible teaches us in what is one of the best illustrations the Bible ever gives, right? If you have a plank in your eye and you are trying to get on somebody else for having a speck in their eye, you're getting it wrong. That is not the right kind of rebuke, right? That is a judgmental, uh, hypocritical. That is, I am thinking more highly of myself than I ought, and I'm thinking more lowly of you than I ought. I am judging you in a way that is not good. The church should never be that way. Now might be the time to bring up parenting again. Parents, we cannot be that way. Peter is trying to rebuke Jesus here, and he is wrong. He means well. I'm going to protect this guy that I follow. I'm not going to let him die. But he's wrong. It's a bad rebuke and a wrong way to rebuke and certainly a misplaced anger in his rebuke. So look what happens right after that, verse 23. But he turned and said to to Peter, this is Jesus, get behind me, Satan, You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's a good rebuke. God, Jesus, just rebuked Peter. He put Peter in his place. He corrected Peter. He called him out. He showed him where he was wrong. He calls him Satan because what he was saying was of Satan. He tells him that you are a hindrance to me. You're getting in the way. You are bothering me. You are preventing the direction from where I'm going, the salvation I'm going to be offering, the death that I'm about to die. You are hindering that. And ultimately, the reason why you're not thinking about God in heaven and his eternal ways, his glory, you're thinking about your own ways and your own thoughts and your own desires. So he rebukes him. We understand this passage. We've read this passage many times. You know it. But you see here a wrong rebuke that should not have been said. And you see here a good, strong, healthy rebuke that puts everything back in its place. Rebuke is throughout the Bible. And rebuke is to be everywhere. And rebuke is a good thing. I know many of you are not fans of NBA basketball, but I sure am. I love watching the NBA playoffs. I used to watch it all night, and then now I can't stay up past 10, so now I just watch until I fall asleep. But this week, the Phoenix Suns won the West. They will start in the finals this week. But their coach, Monty Williams, who is a believer and outspoken, faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, said this. The essence of my coaching is to serve. That was this, this was this week. As a believer in Christ, that is what I'm here for, to serve. And I tell my players all the time, if I get on you, I am not calling you out, I am calling you up. That's good, isn't it? That is really good. If I get on you, I'm not calling you out, I'm calling you up. As a believer in Christ, he says, my coaching, my getting on you, my uh, training you, disciplining you, uh, 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 getting down on you is in order to bring you up to where I know you can get to. 
This is the essence of rebuke. If you look back to Job 42, then what is happening? Well, God says it here at verse seven. My anger burns against you, look at this, for you have not spoken of me what is right. And then he even says there, as my servant Job has. God has come back now to calling Job his servant. Remember, God wasn't speaking in all those earlier chapters. He wasn't speaking about Job in the last several chapters. He was only speaking about himself. And now he's back to saying, my servant Job. And if you will remember, this is exactly the way that, that God spoke about Job in chapter one. When God was speaking to Satan, he would say, my servant Job, my servant Job. And now he's back to saying, my servant Job. It's a reminder to us that God's view of Job has never changed. God's relationship with Job has never changed from God's perspective. God has been a faithful father to Job through it all. That's been the huge lesson through suffering for us week after week. Job was wondering, where has God gone? And yet the reader knew so masterfully, God has not gone anywhere. Job is as loved and safe as he's ever been. His circumstances did not change that. And they do not change that for us. But here we do see that the friends were not speaking rightly of God. And isn't this such a problem? If somebody is misquoting you, if somebody comes in here and says, man, you're not gonna believe what my mom said, and they lie, aren't you gonna be upset? If somebody comes in here and says, man, I hate that school, you ought to believe whatever they were telling me, and they're lying, shouldn't they be upset? When we speak wrongly of people and misrepresent them or uh, uh, um, uh, talk in ways that we should not be talking, isn't that bad? Of course. So what should be done? A healthy, proper rebuke. These friends trying to comfort Job spoke wrongly about God. And we've covered that in weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of sermons throughout the middle of Job. But God straight up says that. You've not spoken to me what is right. So God is angry. So God addresses it. That's a good thing. And so in our lives, when we have not been faithful to God, when we are misrepresenting him, when we have failed as parents, when we've not been committed, when we've not obeyed, when we've been lazy or hypocritical, when we've been stuck in sin or strayed into sin, when we have lost our way, God is going to rebuke us. As a father disciplines his children, he will rebuke us. And we are learning here today that this is a good thing. Is there room for rebuke in your life? Can you handle that? Are spankings good for you? Is time out good for you? Is nose in the corner good for you? Are suspensions good for you? Are trainings good for you? Are hard conversations good for you? Are you so hard or so defensive? Are the walls up so much that you cannot handle a rebuke? And I'm not even talking yet about from other people. That's what real community is. That's what real friendship is. That's what real church is. That's what brothers and sisters in Christ are. One of my favorite quotes that we have to throw out here on a regular basis is, we don't have any real relationships until we're able to have hard conversations. Perhaps your family has not even adopted that yet. And the only conversations you have in your home are shallow and they never get to the heart of the matter. And that's why the tears flow after the conversation's ended. May I suggest for once, for you to get deep enough in the relationships you have 
to let the tears flow while you're still looking eye to eye? That you would be that honest about where the pain is and what the hurt is? That there might be real rebuke and real restoration? God in his goodness has sought out Job's three friends that did not comfort Job, that spoke wrongly of God, and he is letting them know. Now, he's not letting them know so that he can storm out of that meeting and say, I told them. Oh, no, no, nobody's gonna treat me like that. Hey, that'll be the last time they talk about me like that, which we're all familiar with, right? And we think, uh, okay, n- nobody gets one up on me. Man, that's not what God's doing. God's bringing his people back. God's bringing his children back to where they should be. To where if they're gonna speak, remember last week I said, if you don't know what you're talking about, you better stop talking. Remember that? God's bringing these guys back and saying, hey, I, I love you talking. I love you comforting your friend Job. If you're gonna talk about me, make sure you get it right. God warns, don't you talk for him if you're not gonna talk about him rightly. This is a long book. God has revealed to us a ton of information about himself. If we don't know what God has said, then maybe we shouldn't be saying it. And when we get that wrong, there needs to be rebuke. And so this is what God is doing. He is, in a good way, rebuking them. But notice why. Verse eight. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job shall pray for you for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. What? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. He didn't just blast them. He didn't say, get out of my property. You ain't gonna come over here and act like that. Get out of my face talking like that. If you're gonna talk like that, you can go on. We don't talk like that over here. That's not what the rebuke is. That's not a rebuke. The parents that only know how to blast and spank and say, get on out of here, that's not rebuke. You remember last week when I got right here with the kids and I talked about what it means to love and tell somebody and then you bring them in for a hug and you let them know why you're training them? That's rebuke. He just said, my anger burns against you. And he says, come here, I'm gonna tell you what you're gonna do. In my Old Testament, I got all these rules written out. Here's here's what you do. Sacrifice is needed. Go get the rams, go get the bulls. You take them out. You slaughter them. You make sure you see blood, life-given. You make sure you understand something's gotta die for this. And after you offer up that sacrifice, you get Job to pray, because I know he knows how to pray. He doesn't tell them to pray, get Job to pray. In the Old Testament, there's all sorts of functions of a priest. In the New Testament, we don't need a priest. You do not need anybody to go and pray to God for you. You do not. If you want to get right with God, you pray to him on your own through Jesus, the ultimate priest for you. The great priest, the high priest, the chief priest, the ultimate priest. You don't need to come and get me to pray for you. You don't need to go and get your mom to pray for you. If you're trying to get right with God, if God is rebuking you, you don't need to ask somebody else to pray. You get on your knees 
and you pray to God and you cry out to him for acceptance and forgiveness and you will find it. He tells them to go and sacrifice. They go and sacrifice. He says, get Job to pray. Job prays. Look at this. These are the friends for all of those chapters. They're all of that season. were not comforting him. They were upsetting him. They were hurting Job. They were speaking wrongly about God. And now here at the end, God is rebuking them and yet bringing them in. Have Job pray. Make sure there's sacrifice. Why? Well, look at verse eight. I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. God tells them that they're wrong. God tells them that they're foolish. God tells them this is sin. And he's not going to deal with them based off of it. He's going to deal with them based off of their repentance, based off of their turning back, based off of the sacrifice, based off of the prayer, based off of them returning back to him by faith. Rebuke is such a good thing. Rebuke is not, as Monty Williams says, a calling out. It is a calling up. Rebuke is not just a a getting on so you can show that you're right or getting on so they can feel that they're wrong. A rebuke is a way that we hold the standard that needs to be kept. A rebuke is a way that we show people that we love them and more is desired for them. Rebuke is a way to get people where they should be. And God rebukes. The Lord rebukes. So when we think about rebuking other people, we have to make sure that it is God's rebuke or is it ours or is it our rebuke? Do you rebuke people in your life because they've upset you or it's not the way you would do it? Or because God and his ways are in this? Do you rebuke them because they've hurt you? Or do you rebuke them because they're wrong with God? This is an important distinction to make. I remember a story. I know a man who's in the ministry in Georgia. He's about 50 years old now. Serves the Lord in the ministry. And I remember when I was first getting to know him and I was asking him his testimony. He told me this. He said, when I was in my 20s, man, I had gotten so wayward in his 20s. That I had gotten so wayward. I wasn't thinking about God at all, not living for Christ at all, never read my Bible, never went to church. And I accidentally bumped into one of the older ladies that I went to church with growing up. And she said, and I quote, something to this effect. After the small talk of how are you, you know, she said, well, I don't know what you think you are doing with your life but you better be in church sitting beside me this Sunday. He said, the message that day got a hold of him and he has been walking with the Lord ever since. It was the rebuke from the lady that got a hold of him at first that put him in position for the rebuke from the Lord to get a hold of him at last. We must believe that rebuke is a good thing. The Lord rebukes. When the Lord rebukes the three friends here, he rebukes so that he can restore. You see that sacrifice is in play. And in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system is a shadow. It is an example for us 
of the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament could never save. It was never meant to save. It is to be an example to show us of the true Savior Jesus, who holy and spotless would be our sacrificial lamb. And as God killed Jesus on the cross, it was to be for us the ultimate sacrifice where all of our sins have been paid, that whoever believes in him and repents and turns to God would be forgiven of all of their sins because of that sacrifice. In the same way that Job's friends were accepted before God, because of their repentance and turning back, they were restored after the rebuke. The same way you and I can be restored after the rebuke. And so number one, the Lord rebukes. Number two, the Lord restores. Read with me starting in verse nine. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave, God, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. The Lord restored Job. Do you have a category for that? Does God do this? Is he able to do this? How do you feel about this story? How do you feel about this ending? Is it a good ending? Does it upset you? Does it encourage you? Is it a bad ending? Did Job have a good story or a bad story? Did he have a good life or a bad life? Well, it's complicated. Many a weeks we've come here to Job and I've said that it is complex. But we cannot miss that the Lord restored. The first thing I want us to see that he restored was faith. Faith undoubtedly has been restored. Look at verse nine. Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Amethite, look at this, went and did what the Lord had told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. We are now back to a place where God speaks, they're listening, and they respond to what God is saying. God says, go and offer a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. They go and offer a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. God says, go and pray that you would be forgiven. And they go and pray that they would be forgiven. And not only is it just that, but it's like friends doing it together. It's Job helping them out. 
One thing for us to notice, and commentator Mason points it out really well, the repentance of Job's friends is preceded by Job's own repentance. Remember, it's, it's the beginning of this chapter where Job repents. It's last week's sermon. It's verse six where it says, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Once Job got right, Job was in position to help his friends get right. And as we know, the world over, until you've actually repented and got right with God, you never really help your friends repent and get right with God. Amen. We'll keep acting like we're helping each other and we'll just stay in the mess and struggle of life forever but you truly hit your knees and cry out to God in repentance and truly turn to him, you will finally be in a position to show somebody else how to do that. For the beginning of revival, listen to Mason, for the beginning of revival is a deep humbling and a breaking of the people of God, even of the best. Job is now helping his friends focus on the salvation from God. But Job is described in the beginning as the best man on earth, the most righteous man on earth. But it is not until him broken and humble and repenting before God that he is now praying for his friends that they would repent before God. So their faith has been restored. But not only is their faith restored, Job's stuff is restored, his family and his wealth. And as we talked about in chapter one, wealth way back in the day was measured uh, by what you had more than by your money. And in some ways it's like that now, right? In the beginning, he only had half of this amount of livestock. So here it says 14,000 sheep. In chapter one, it says 7,000 sheep. Here it says 6,000 camels. In the beginning, it says 3,000 camels. It's twice as much. God has truly restored his stuff. But notice how God did this. If you're not paying attention like I'm trying to get us to do, you would think that it was just that. This is just some miracle story. It was a magic wand or a super miracle or that he won the lottery or something like that, but it's not. Look at verse 11. Then it came to him all of his brothers and all of his sisters and all who had known him before. And they ate bread with him in his house. Now let me just say, these people weren't around through all the suffering. If you know anything about family, right? That's true, isn't it? When it's going well, they'll come around, but they might not. That's a small little nugget in this story. Keep going. They showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. That is a systematic theology in and of itself, the evil that God brought on him, right? And we're not gonna deal with that today. But they showed him sympathy and they comforted him. But look at that last sentence. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. You see how the restoration is happening? God didn't just say, okay, that little episode is over with the devil. Bam, here's everything. That's not what happened. If we just glossed over it, we would miss this. Mason goes on to write, how wise it was of the Lord to accomplish Job's healing and restoration, not through some supernatural zap, but by surrounding him with people. How the love of these folks must have warmed and filled Job's lonely 
aching spirit. He had been sitting outside suffering with nobody. And is there a restoration out there better than a group of loving people in your life? God is restoring him. Mason goes on to write, naturally the Lord's liberality does not always take the form of material riches. That has been one of the chief lessons of the last 40 chapters of Job. But technically speaking, there is really no direct connection between Job's righteousness and the final restoration of his wealth. After all, the story did not have to end this way. The fact that it does is simply and purely a demonstration of the Lord's gracious magnanimity. If we try to draw some necessary connection between righteousness and worldly prosperity, we have missed the whole point of this book. The Lord's giving is just as gratuitously unpredictable as his taking away. We know this. God doesn't always give us our children back. God doesn't always give us our money back. God doesn't always restore this way. But it is true that the Lord restores. And we think about God restoring, we can think of many, many stories in the Bible where we have seen him restore it, and we can think of many, many stories in the Bible where he does not restore it. And we ask the question, does God restore? The answer is always yes and no, maybe, sometimes. It's the already, not yet. Will he restore it here on earth? Maybe, but he definitely will in heaven. Do you remember how Revelation ends where Jesus says at the very end of Revelation, behold, I'm making all things new. There is coming a day when it will all be restored, when all of our pains will be gone and all of the tensions will be removed and all of the strife that exists in any relationship that you have will be healed or fixed. There will be no problems and no pain and no crying once God finally restores it all. The best example of him restoring is when he restores your heart to know him and love him. And here's the biggest restoration that we have in Job. If you haven't been paying attention to the whole book of Job, then you think here that all of these cattle showing up is finally the restoration and you're finally relieved at that point. If material blessings are really doing that much for you, then I'm sorry about that. There is no restoration out there as good as getting right with God. The restoration that comes from knowing that God loves you and that God's not mad at you and that whether you're suffering or not suffering, God is for you in Christ because he sent his son to die for you. Do you remember Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. What a line. He restores my soul. In Psalm 63, you've got the soul thirsting. You've got the soul fainting. But we have the soul restored. When you come to know that the God that made you who has a holy standard that is too high for me or you to reach, rebukes us to make sure we are aware that that standard is too high for us to reach, but then shows us his son that he gave for us, 
that reached that standard, that is that standard, and that by trusting in him, God removes all the hostility. He brings sinners into his presence. He adopts us to be his children. He wants us in his family. He receives us. When your soul comes to know that, your soul is restored. Your soul finds life. Your soul comes alive. Your dead soul comes alive. Your lost soul finds its place. The soul is restored. This is what we really see in the book of Job. Mason goes on to write, in fact, the Lord used this period of recuperation for the blessing of many, many people. I love this take, listen to this. In Job's home, there was something going on that nobody wanted to miss. It was like Christmas or a, or a wedding. There was feasting and gift giving. But more than that, people were ministering to each other. Job was praying for his friends and his relatives, and they in turn were comforting him. It was a two-way street. It was, in a word, love. People were loving each other. How amazing. Love is what happens when the kingdom of God breaks forth. The end of Job is neglected all the time. And what we see God doing here is restoring and if you're going quickly, you'll just think, he got all his stuff back. And we close the book and we think, I don't really get it though because I ain't ever get all my stuff back. But the point's not he got all his stuff back. The point is that he got his faith in God back. Not because God had gone anywhere, but because Job's doubt had brought him to a place where he thought God had gone somewhere and God had brought him back to knowing, you're my God. You love me. You're the one that made me right with you. You're the one that forgives me. It's not on my works that I've gotten in this position of feeling so loved by you. It's by your goodness that you love me and have shown me how much you love me. And I feel it there. And because he's been restored, now he's helping other people get restored. And that's the whole point. The stuff is just there to show us that sometimes God does that. And there are many of you all in the room right now going, man, he's restored so much in my life. And there are many of you right now going, man, there's a lot of things I wish he would restore. So in closing, we ask ourselves, did, did Job have it good? It's a hard question to answer, isn't it? Did Job have a good life? If you knew that 20 years from now you'd get all your kids back and everything, would you take them all dying today? Would you be willing to lose every single one of us and none of us talking to you? Be sick as you've ever been? Sitting out on the road with a sign? Did Job have it good? That's a hard question to answer. Unless goodness is first and foremost having God. Job never lost God. And God never lost Job. It depends on what you think is good. I want to ask you today if you've been restored to that. Do you believe him? Do you trust him? Is the goodness of God what satisfies your soul? Has he restored your soul? 
Now the big question here is, in order for something to be restored, it has to have first been stored, right? You restock the pantry once the pantry's been emptied. If it was never filled the first time, it's a stocking, it's not a restocking. And how about your soul? How about who you really are? Will you let the Lord rebuke you here today? Can God rebuke you here today? And maybe he won't do to you what he did to Job? We're not playing a game with God. We're not making a deal with him. But will we be restored? Would you believe him? Would you give your life to him? Would you be forgiven of your sins? The Lord rebukes and the Lord restores through the salvation that we have through Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the way the book of Job ends and for us thinking through these categories. Father, we thank you so much that you've allowed us the opportunity to look at Job's experience from many different angles. And Father, we welcome you to rebuke us. We pray that you would help us anytime we try to rebuke anybody else, that we would do it with humility. We pray, God, that you would bring about restoration. Thank you, God, for the way that you restored Job. And we pray, God, that you would restore us. You would restore our souls and our lives through faith in Christ, through the forgiveness of sins, through turning back to you. Father, help us to have in our lives a category for rebuke and restoration as we understand you rightly, as we follow you with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.